Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your spirit and ask that you will join us uh, this morning and lighten our minds, uh, help us uh, to understand your will and to fulfill it more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So a couple of announcements. I need to follow up evidently from what I announced last week. Uh, does anybody remember any special announcements last week? <laughs> yes. Uh, after I made the announcement last week about the position, I'll be taking the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Well, Matt, big mouthful. Uh, evidently, um, that was uh, uh, surprising to some of you. <laughs> and uh, and what I said afterwards evidently didn't necessarily register with everyone because I've been getting communications all week long about um, this this idea that I'm somehow leaving Common Reason Ministry. I'm not leaving Come and Reason Ministries. I'm still going to be the president of Come and Reason Ministries. I'm going to be writing blogs. I'm still going to be creating sharing materials. I'm still going to be involved in class at least as much as I was before COVID. And if you remember, for for the three years before COVID, uh, on average, I taught about every other week because I was traveling and speaking so many places. So if you have the idea that uh, in a couple of months I'm not going to be involved anymore, that's not what I said. Uh, I won't be here f- living. We're going to move. We're not going to live here. And if you come to the to our studio when it's done, and it's hopefully done in about a month, uh, I will be interacting live on Zoom. And then I'm planning on being here in person once a month for our monthly potluck. So, um, which we're planning to have. So I'm not I'm not abandoning all of you guys. So, <laughs> okay. And then uh, the building itself is coming along quite nicely. And uh, the projections are uh, end of August, hopefully, we will be done and be able to transition over there. So add about six months to that. Um, <laughs> no, you're, I see all the heads nodding. You've all worked with con- contracting before, and you understand how it goes. But we'll keep that in prayer, too, in Lord's timing. And then this week, I was uh, at a two-day event uh, organized by the American Association of Christian Counselors in conjunction with Liberty University, inviting um, educators and professionals from all over the country to talk, uh, come in and, and talk about the issue of religious liberty uh, in um, professional counseling, um, treatment, and education. You may or may not know, but there is an aggressive um, assault on religious liberty in the professional setting and the educational setting. Uh, if you don't abide by a certain LGBTQ agenda uh, and teach that in your program, they're threatening um, certification of your organization. And if you lose certification, then your graduates can't get licensure uh, and so forth. And this is this is part of a, of a purposeful assault on religious liberty in this country. And I heard some dire stories, uh, real life stories of uh, practitioners in other states um, than the free states that, that we live in here in the South uh, and how the uh, system is aggressively working to restrain and restrict their um, free exercise of not only their religious practice, but their good medical judgment. I'll give you a quick example. There's a psychologist in California, and I, I can't actually verbally say publicly what is being taught to the third graders in California right now because it would be considered too vulgar that I would get censored. The, the, the graphic nature of some of the things they are teaching um, these children in the, in the public schools in California. Uh, and uh, the psychologist came to testify before uh, the school board about the 
harmful, and they're doing this without parental knowledge and telling the children to not tell their parents about it because they know it's not right. That's why you don't tell your parents, right? Okay. And, uh, and so the harmful nature of what's happening. And a, uh, a trans person, uh, after that testimony, wrote a 51-page complaint to her licensing board and the state governor and the mayor of the city and the city council uh, demand, uh, alleging that she is uh, um, uh, speaking hate speech, uh, she is uh, uh, stirring up violence, she is uh, she's, uh, aggressive, that the people, the California's lives are in danger and demanding that her license be revoked. Antifa got involved and she had to have a security follow her everywhere now in California, including she goes to church she has to have a personal bodyguard to go to church now because of this and do you understand the tactics here being involved uh she was not hateful she was kind she was gracious in her uh in her she was simply showing the truth about what these things do to children's minds which is harmful and so what is the tactic is not to come back and say oh no no you're incorrect here's the evidence that this is actually good for neural development and good for psychosocial development here's the science that that what we're teaching no they don't come back with that because the science and the truth doesn't support them they come back with intimidation and assault to coerce people and intimidate people to conform and this is the society we're living in right now do you remember the 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 children's song dare to be a daniel Dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. This is a time in history when, when people of character and people who understand the principles of God's kingdom, it is time for the people to stand uh, firm, uh, not, not to seek to make other people conform to what you believe. That, that's, that's King of the North stuff. But stand against the assault on con- making you conform to what they believe. Okay, That's not King of the North. And you need to have that discernment and that difference. I don't see anything in our grade school or high schools to combat any of the stuff that's coming. So I have no information at all regarding what the SDA system is doing. So you could ask people that you know in that system. Hopefully they are uh, making movements. Um, if I had to guess, based on the way the hospital corporations owned by the SDA system dealt with the COVID issue, uh, I wouldn't hold up high hopes that they're going to actually stand for principle. So the, the, the pressures are real. Again, I don't know anything inside the Adventist educational system, so I'm not speaking for that. But you should inquire and see. I'm sure they're under the same pressures. I'm sure they're under the same pressures. Uh, they had some lawyers there who have actually won multiple cases at multiple levels, including three Supreme Court cases um, regarding these issues. One of the um, cases w- uh, that, that they represented in, or that, that was involved, one of the schools that was involved in one of the cases there was La Sierra University. Uh, so um, they were also under huge pressure to conform, and, and their case ultimately won as well. So um, this, is, this, is, this is the times in which we live. All right, let's go to our lesson. And we're going to do lesson number seven in the quarter, quarterly, the, In the Crucible with Christ. And the, uh, the, the title is Indestructible Hope. And the memory verse is Romans 5.5, 5, which reads, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. What is hope? A feeling of positive expectation for something desired? I, I really hope I get that. I hope I get this for Christmas. Looking forward with desire and reasonable confidence. I have hope in the second coming. Is the hope for what you're going to get for Christmas exactly the same as I have hope in the second coming? No. 
Both are legitimate uses of the word, but notice there is a, there's a difference in, in, in actual what it means. What do you hope for? In whom or what do you place your hope? As Christians, what are we to hope for? Should we hope for something that the Bible says won't happen? Should we hope, for instance, for peace of all the nations of the world? Should we hope for... uh, The only way that you can hope for that, if you understand the prophecies of Daniel, when the rock comes out and all the nations of the earth are replaced with the kingdom that shall never end, we can hope for that, right? The memory verse is about God's love and the Holy Spirit. What does God's love and the Holy Spirit have to do with hope? Everything. How are they connected? Well, because the Holy Spirit puts the desire in our hearts to do good, to do what's right, to know God better. So it's a, a companionship between God and the Holy Spirit, actually, presented to us that we can have the hope of eternity. Have the hope for eternity because of God's love and because of what the Holy Spirit is doing. I like that. Let's read the memory verse in a larger context. It's, it's, it's Romans 5.5, 5, but let's start back a little bit in Romans 4. And I'm going to read this section to you, uh, starting in Romans 4, uh, 18, and we're going to go through 5, 9. And I'm going to read it to you from the remedy and see what we're hope, what, what the context of this hope is all about. It says, in the face of human opinion and, and conventional wisdom, Abraham placed his hope and trust in God and thus became the father of many ethnic groups, just as God told him, your descendants will be numerous. Without doubting God for a moment, he accepted in it accepted it in the reality that he was 100 years old and his ability to procreate was severely limited and Sarah had gone through menopause and was beyond childbearing years. Even though in human understanding the promise seemed hopeless, Abraham did not waver in his confidence in God but praised God as he realized that God was able to miraculously fulfill the promise. This unwavering trust in God in the face of scientific evidence to the contrary was recognized as righteousness because this tr- this trust replaced distrust and opened Abraham's mind to receive the endowment of a new heart, right motives, and Christ-like principles established by God's recreative power. This record of his trust being recognized as righteousness is not written merely for Abraham, but for everyone who trusts in God. Everyone who trusts in the God who raised Jesus from the dead is recognized as righteous because through trust, they receive the endowment of a perfect heart and have new motives created within, and their distrust of God disappears. Because our minds were infected by distrust of God and our condition was terminal, Jesus was given up to experience death in order to procure the remedy. Having achieved God's purpose, he was raised to life and now distributes this remedy to completely restore us to perfect harmony with him. Therefore, if our minds and hearts have been set right through trust, we are at peace with God through the remedy achieved by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that we we know the truth about God and are one back to trust and thus open our minds to experience God's gracious healing power. Our God... Excuse me, our joy is found in the hope of full restoration 
into beings possessing godlike character. Because of this, we rejoice in our trials and afflictions, for we know that trials bring to light the shortcomings and defects of character. If we persevere choosing God's methods, the defects are removed and character is purified and pure character increases our hope for God's kingdom. And our hope will not be disappointed because God pours out his love into our hearts and thereby matures and nobles, restores us into his image by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at the exact moment it was needed, when we were infected with distrust, rebelling against God and our condition was terminal, Christ died to restore trust and cure the terminally ill. Very rarely will someone die for a healthy person, though this might sometimes happen. But God the Father demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were dying and in rebellion against him, Christ died to restore trust and cure sinfulness in order to heal us and bring us back to unity with God. Now that we have been won back to trust, cleansed in mind, and set right with God by all that Christ accomplished at the cross, it is ridiculous to think that God would let us go. For since while we distrusted God and fought against him in every way, his son died to win us back to trust and friendship with him and to cure our rebellious hearts, how much more, having won us back to trust and friendship, will God heal all the damage caused to us while we were in rebellion against him? And even better still, having experienced this healing of mind and heart, we are overjoyed because God, through Jesus, has made us his friends. What do we hope for? What is our hope? Isn't it unity at oneness with God? Restoration, having the fear, the selfishness, the guilt, the shame, to be united eternally with our loving creator. And our hope is well-placed. Second paragraph in the lesson, it says, in one of his books, C.S. Lewis writes about a make-believe lion. You know about that make-believe lion? Aslan? Wanting to meet this lion, someone asks if the lion is safe. The person is told he's not safe, but he's good. The lion represents Jesus in the story, yes? What do you think of this idea that Jesus is not safe, but he's good? You you like it or don't? I don't like it. Don't like it. Don't like it. Okay. You know, I'm going to say C.S. Lewis has written wonderful things, great apologists for Christianity and for the, and for the truth of God's word. And I have personally been blessed by many of the things he's written and I've, that I've read. So I, I want to ask, is there any way that any of us can, con- can conceive of a way where this is true, that Jesus is not safe? I, I can't think of a way, personally. Can you think of a way in which Jesus is not safe? Yes. He's not safe when he brought the sword to divide families and so forth. So he's not safe when he brought the sword. What sword was that he brought? Truth. The sword of truth. And so, um, so truth is, is, is something that's harmful. Truth hurts. Truth is dangerous. Truth is, is something that is not safe. Or is truth healing and restorative? You will know the truth. And you will be killed by the truth. (laughs) You will know the truth, and the truth will make you miserable. You will know the truth, and you will suffer in the torments of hell as you come to know the truth. 
Okay. So it, pardon? For a lie, everything you said. Yeah. So yeah. So so is the truth unsafe or is the lie unsafe? So again, is there any way where where it's true that Jesus is actually unsafe? Glory at the end that burned me. that's kind of unsafe. Really? Truly? Okay. So who burns? What happens to the 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands and thousands in in Daniel chapter 7 when that fire unfolds? What happens to them? What happened to uh, uh, Elijah and Moses in the Mount of Transfiguration? Did the fire hurt them at all? So is the fire unsafe? So what's unsafe? See, I'm so glad you guys are bringing this up because it's unpacking a deeply embedded lie in Christianity. Deeply embedded lie. The fire is perfectly safe. What's not safe is sin. Sin is not safe. But we have this lie in Christianity that, that we're more afraid of God who's trying to heal us and save us than we are of the sin in our life which is killing us. See, we, we feel safe in sin because we've lived in it our whole lives. We're so used to it. We don't notice it's corruption. We don't notice it's destruction. And we've been conditioned with a viewpoint that God has to punish for sin. And thus we become more afraid of him. And we have this. So I think this idea that Jesus is or the lion is not safe, but he's good. It's a holdover or a vestige coming out of the dark ages conception of God's law and justice. Yes. I wondered about Lewis's meaning of the word safe. So do I. That's why I'm asking, can you conceive of a way where it's true that Jesus is not safe? Yes. If safe means I can continue in my life, then no, God is not safe because he wants to change my life. So again, what do you mean by safe? If I can... That was my question about Lewis's youth. No, but I don't understand what you're saying. If I can continue in my life... Of righteousness, of holiness, of love for... Okay, and if you continue in your life of sin, how is Jesus not safe to you? Jesus is not safe in that he wants me to change. Right, and if you... And And that's not being safe. Really? That's what I'm understanding, Lewis. But is that true? If If he means what you're saying, is it actually true? It's still false. So if you have somebody who's smoking two packs a day and they have a doctor who wants them to change and quit smoking, is, the, is their lack of safety coming from the doctor who wants to change them, or the smoking, which is going where's their actual danger coming from? So if, if we understand what you mean, that, that God wants to change them, he wants to change them from, from anything that's destroying them to what will restore them to life. So does that make Jesus unsafe, or is he the actual source of safety? So even if we accept that's what he meant, it's still false. It's not true. It's only true if, if we have a penal legal model. If we have a penal legal model that, sin, that God's law works like human law, uh, it's a system of rules that requires authoritarian enforcement, and therefore sin is breaking rules, and God is the source of inflicted punishment, He's not safe because he's required to punish, but he's good because he's made an avenue through which you can get your sins paid for, and he won't have to punish you. But he's not safe. 
This is a perversion, in my view. It's based on the holdover from the imperial law construct coming out of Rome, rather than worshiping God as creator. And what the scriptures always teach is that the danger doesn't come from God. The danger comes from sin itself. The wages of sin is death, and when full-grown brings forth death, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Let me ask you this. You have a person, a person who has a terminal medical condition, and, and they refuse the doctor's treatment. Does the doctor become unsafe to them? No, the doctor's never unsafe to them. How about this? A patient has a terminal medical condition, and they trust the doctor. They know the doctor isn't against them. But the treatment the doctor gets gives them that will cure them, they don't like the treatment. It tastes bad. And so they cheat and substitute their own treatment that tastes better. Will they get better? Is the doctor now their enemy? Is the doctor unsafe for them? How many substitute their own treatment for sin for what God has given us? Because they don't like the treatment God has given them. It might be an unpleasant treatment that initially doesn't taste good because it requires them to maybe change something that they don't want to change. And so they substitute their own treatment. Now, if, if the person with the terminal disease is cheating, they're cheating by not taking the treatment because it doesn't taste good. And they go back to the doctor and they say, yes, I'm taking my treatment, but they're not. They're cheating. Is the doctor unsafe? He's not unsafe. But will the person get well? This is why God can't save cheats. You can't cheat and be saved. You have to actually be real and live out the truth as God has provided it in order to get well. It's not that God ever becomes the enemy. He's always safe. There's a hand somewhere? Yes. I was just going to say that I'm I'm kind of thinking that C.S. Lewis might have been looking at Christ when he came to this earth, there was this deception that God is not safe, but God is good. That's what the Pharisees taught. And Christ came to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. So maybe C.S. Lewis understood that. He was trying to show that what someone told this naive person was not wrong because that naive person come to find out who the language was. Last paragraph says, even though we don't always understand God and he seems to do unpredictable things, that doesn't mean that God is against us. It simply means that we don't have the full picture yet. But we struggle with the idea that for us to have peace, confidence, and hope, God must be understandable and predictable. He needs to be in our thinking safe. As such... We set ourselves up for disappointment. I think everything in this paragraph is well said, except for the insertion about the safe part. Because rightly understood, God is absolutely safe. God is the source of life, health, goodness, righteousness, holiness. God is in God. There is no evil. There is no sin. There's no shadow of turning. There's no cruelty. There's no disease. There's no unkindness. There's no wickedness. There's no disloyalty. There's no untrustworthiness. There's no impatience. There's no foolishness. There's no ignorance. There's no immaturity. In God, there's perfection of all things good, all things loving, all things truth, liberty, kindness, patience, virtue, righteousness. God is 100% absolutely safe at all times. 
Thank you for that. It's true. And do you understand the infection in Christianity that suggests there's some aspect to God that makes him unsafe? It's a lie. He's always safe. Sin is unsafe. Rebellion against God is unsafe. Cheating is unsafe. Believing lies is unsafe. God is safe. Why is it not safe? Well, excuse me, what is not safe is sin, rebellion, disharmony, and why? Why is that not safe? Separate, I love that. Separates us from God. Takes us out of harmony with how life and health operate. Okay? Understand the lie when you hear, if you ask somebody, why is sin not safe? You can ask that question. Is it safe to sin? Most Christians can easily answer, no, it's not safe. Ask them why. It's really very telling. You will, they will indicate to you instantly whether they're operating in a designer law of you, worshiping the creator whose laws reality operate upon, who need to be restored into your heart and mind, or they're operating in the Roman view, the imperial law of you. Now, why is sin not safe? You get in legal trouble. God is required to punish. These types of reasons. And if that's your diagnosis of the problem, then what are your solutions going to be? Well, in order to be safe, then what do we need? And this idea that God is not safe, okay, coupled with the penal system uh, uh, and, and our desire to feel safe, okay, we have a desire to feel safe, don't we? We don't like to feel unsafe, right? And if God is not safe and we don't feel safe, then what do we have to do to, to be safe? Think that through. Yeah, say it, say it. Have something between us and God. If God's not safe, we don't feel safe, we want to be safe, we have to have something between us. We have to have someone plead. We have to have someone offer. We have to have someone pay. We have to have someone shield. We have to have something hide. We have to have something cover. Because if God saw us, we're not safe. It's hard to believe that a Christian that knows God would think that he's unsafe. Oh, uh, Really? I mean, but they know God. Okay, if they know him as Jesus revealed him to be, you're right, because they would know that he is perfectly safe. But but what happens is there's this other view of God that is taught in Christianity that is not like Jesus. He's an authoritarian rule maker who has to uh, use his power to inflict punishment, who takes pleasure in the suffering. He's unforgiving. He He won't forgive unless the proper payment is made. He has to receive sinless blood, and if he doesn't get that, he won't forgive. That is not the God Jesus revealed. Yes. That's the point of uh, Lewis's quote. The person is asking, am I safe in front of this beast who scares me, which is what the natural sinful person is in front of God. And so the person is asking, am I safe? And the answer is, you are not safe if you offend this lion. And do we believe that's true? It's not true. It's not true. Some people are questioning if there's some metaphorical... Uh, oh, he's really saying your sin isn't safe. But the direct question is, I'm a sinner. Am I safe in front of this being? And the answer is, you are not safe if you are a sinner. And, and that answer is false. And if you want evidence for that, look at the cross. At the cross, did Jesus have his powers available if he wanted to use them or not? And when they beat him, abused him, mocked him, were they unsafe with Jesus? Was Jesus uh, a source of threat to them? Were they in danger of what Jesus was going to do to them? They were not. And he said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Well, how about if we went to heaven and spit in the Father's face and cursed him and mocked him? Jesus has shown you what he would do. He would forgive you 
and you would die of your condition, which is alienation and rebellion against God and out of harmony with the way life is constructed to operate. Just like your doctor would forgive you if you had a terminal cancer condition and rejected his interventions and treatments and cursed him for it, he would cry, especially if your dad was the doctor, he would cry and watch you die. But he would not be your enemy, and he would not be unsafe for you. So the, um, we need to erase completely from our hearts, minds, and beliefs any suggestion that interferes um, with our trust in God and infers in any way that God is not safe. God's the only place of safety. Consider these Bible verses. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it goes on to say, who he did not spare some, he gave him up, how long with, with, with him give us all things? How about this? Psalms 91, 9 and 10. If you make the most high your dwelling place, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Or Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Or Psalms 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. God is the only place of safety. So we have to reject this idea that God is not safe or Jesus is not safe. Let's see. But the rest of that paragraph is excellent. The rest of that paragraph is excellent. Our human perspective is narrow. It's limited. Our, our, our infinite God who sees through time, who sees all variable possibilities, what other people are going to do, how the, how the cascade of events unfold. He sees possibilities in our decisions and paths we might take that we could never even conceive of. Uh, therefore, trusting him with outcomes is always wise. And when we don't get exactly what we thought we wanted in that moment, the person of faith who knows how good God is says, that's okay. There's something around the corner I couldn't see, and I know you were just uh, actually choosing better for me than I would have chosen because I couldn't see that. This, this is absolutely right. We should not look at a circumstance and condemn God for his actions in those circumstances. He's always doing what's best. Can you think of some examples, though, where God has done something that was, to the people at the time, unpredictable? Didn't see that one coming. Joe. Joe, but God didn't do that. Oh, well, you're right. He allowed it. He allowed it, but he didn't do it. Other Others. How about when God called Moses to go back and talk to Pharaoh? Moses is living happy. He's got a wife. He's got some kids. He's, he's got a routine going. He's comfortable with his uh, shepherding ways. And uh, uh, did, he, did Moses see that coming? And Moses said, oh, man, I was waiting for this call. I've been so restless here. I was watching the phone every day hoping I'd get a call. <laughs> or, or did Moses go, uh, can't you send somebody else? I didn't see that one coming. How about God's response to Adam's sin in sending Jesus? Did the angels see that coming? What? Jesus? No. What? Didn't see that coming. How about God allowing Joseph to be sold as a slave and elevating Joseph to prime minister? Did the brothers see that coming? Even though Joseph told them about two dreams that kind of foretold it was coming, they still didn't see it coming, did they? Did the apostles, even though Jesus told them, see the crucifixion coming? Even though Jesus told them, did they still see it coming? Think, think through a couple of those elements. How about this ministry? We didn't see how God was going to work 12 years ago when events unfolded around here, did we? 
And we see how God has blessed and opened up avenues. Or how about my call to Liberty University? <laughs> we did not see that coming at all. <laughs> we got a we got a nomination and a phone call, and it was just like seven eight weeks ago, and and now I'm already uh, uh, <laughs> ready to go. She said, "No, I'm not ready, but uh, but but I whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You put your hand to the till." Don't look back. Keep moving forward. Zacchaeus didn't know what was coming. That's a good one. Yeah, Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today. I don't think Zacchaeus saw that one coming either. Hey, I would have called the cleaners and had the, had the place clean before you came today. How many of you would be ready for Jesus to come to your house today? <laughs> All right, so uh, since we're talking about God pouring love into our hearts, and this is our hope, I want us to consider John and what he wrote in the Three Angels' Messages in connection with what John wrote in 1 John 4, 16 through 18. So I'm going to read the three angels' messages out of the NIV. Let's read this first. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey the commandments of God and remain faithful to Jesus. Hold that right there in your attention. And now let's consider what we just read, and I want you to harmonize it with the same author inspired by the same Holy Spirit who wrote this in 1 John 4, 16 through 18. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I want you to harmonize those two. Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. And then this long list of horrible things of punishment that come for those who receive the mark. But wait. Whoever lives in God lives in love, and God in him, and love is made complete, and there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Do you fear the judgment? Do you fear the coming punishment? Well, John says, if you do, you're not yet perfect in love. Do you see any tension? The same author, same Holy Spirit. Or do you see the three angels' message saying the exact same thing? Did it sound the same? So, how are we to fear God, but then if we have God's love in our hearts, we have no fear? I don't think that fear means the fear that we think of. It's, it's give glory to God, don't fear God, honor God, 
Okay, so she's saying the first fear doesn't mean what we typically think. It means awe and respect and admiration. Okay, great. So we can find harmony by recognizing that the fear in the fear God and give glory to him isn't actual be afraid or be terrorized. Wonderful. Because in love, we don't have terror or dread, but we will have admiration and awe, won't we? So we can, beautiful. We've got that part worked out. Wonderful. Now, let's, let's keep going. What is then the relationship between fearing God and judgment and the confidence of love that we're to have in the day of judgment? Fear God and glory to him for the hour of his judgment has it's come. His judgment, though. It's not our judgment. So okay. we shouldn't have fear because we're not being judged. So, so how's that related to love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Is being like him connected with giving him glory? Absolutely. Do you see that? And and we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Because we're like him. Because we're like him, we don't need to fear the outcome. So another word for judgment is? Diagnosis. In the day of diagnosis. If we're like him, we don't mind the inspection and the examination. If we've had rebelliousness and wickedness and evil purged and righteousness reproduced within, we're not afraid to be examined on examination day if we're being examined. But we also become powerful witnesses. So given this example before, somebody has a terminal illness and a doctor offers them a cure, takes one pill, boom, illness is cured. Do they become a witness for the doctor and his cure? Yes, they do. Do they get any glory to self? I was sick and dying. I didn't do anything. Took the medicine he gave me. No glory to self. This is a, we give glory to him by showing that we're like him in that day, that we have been changed from rebelliousness and fear and self-centeredness to trust and love. We give him glory and people can make judgments about the one who has the cure. What about fear having to do with punishment? The one who fears is not made perfect in love because fear has to do with punishment. So this fear isn't the awe and admiration fear, is it? The fear. This is, she said, that's the real fear. <laughs> the real deal. Real deal fear. Okay. Fear has to do with punishment. Fear, this is self-centered. It's all about me. I'm going to get hurt. Well, how does love drive that out? Perfect love casts out all fear. How does that work? When you, when you do what God says and it changes who you are, then you love and you don't expect. So where is the orientation of your heart's desire when you love? Where are you oriented? Where is the orientation of your heart's desire when you're afraid? Okay. Notice the difference. When you actually love, your concern for self is set aside for something greater than self, that you you value more than you value self. It's not that you don't value yourself. It's not that you want to suffer. It's not that you have a desire to have harm come. But, but something you value so much more than yourself, you're willing to suffer for. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of door. Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, I can promise you, if we could interview them, not one of them said they were looking forward to the, the, the heat treatment they were about to get, the heat therapy. No, they weren't looking for the, or the time. Well, I've always loved lions. I'd like to, you know, maybe be a, a lion tamer. Uh, Daniel's probably not looking forward to that. There's no part of them that wanted it. 
but they were willing to suffer it because they loved God more than they loved protecting themselves. Does that make sense? So what happens then if punishment is viewed as coming from God rather than coming from sin? Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction, Galatians 6, 8. So the Bible teaches that there's a punishment for sin, but it comes from sin. It destroys us. But if we remove that and instead teach that the punishment comes from God, then where do we place our fear? Not love. You can't love somebody that you know is going to punish you. She says you can't love somebody you know is going to punish you. Okay. What about parents and their children? They're not punishing. They're disciplined. Thank you. She knows. She knows. Yes. They are not punishing. Punishment comes from punitive, meaning to exact vengeance upon. They're disciplining, discipling, teaching. It means they're educating in love. And so, yes, uh, parents or God disciplines those they love. That's discipling. Okay. So this is where, after the thousand years, the whole question of rising the wicked again, only to see them suffer in the flames, it's never disciplined. They're not going to learn. They're not going to change. You're not going to be transformed. So what's going on? You have to have an explanation for that. The fires of the three angels' message. There will be full force of God's wrath without mixture with mercy. That's right. God is no longer intervening to protect them, insulate them from reaping the full measure of what unremedied sin does to the heart, mind, character of the sinner. Throughout all human history, God has been interceding and insulating people from the full measure. At that point, he lets them stand in the unveiled glory of his fiery presence of truth and love, and full truth burns into their mind. Their lies, their denial, wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. All the lies we tell to make ourselves not feel so bad about ourselves are removed. They're aware, not only of their own corruption, they have, because I believe this is my view, because it's infinite truth that they're standing in now, the fires of God's presence that are life-giving to the righteous are causing torment. Why? Not from the fire, from the awareness of the sin in their own characters and hearts, and they have awareness. So the man who molested children not only knows what he's done, he will have awareness of the pain that the children suffered under his hand. That will sink in on him. Imagine what that will be like to feel their pain that he caused them. And on and on it goes. And that's why, in the end, God doesn't take their lives. They do not want to live in a place where they have real truth of who they are fully boring in on them all the time. That would be eternal torture, right? That would be. And that's why they ultimately surrender their life, beg for the mountains to fall on them and crush them and hide them from him. as They don't want to be there. But it's not an infliction. So we'll, we'll move on. Because, boy, where time is going by so fast. There's so much more. We're, Sunday's lesson. <laughs> the lesson focuses our attention on the big picture and references Revelation 12, 7 through 9, and Romans 8, 22. And let's look at those and ask the big picture at lessons. Uh, Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The, dra- the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the w- whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. What's the big picture idea here? The great con- so sin is not restricted to human beings on earth. There is a sin problem that goes beyond the earth. It didn't even start on earth. It spread to earth. 
Okay? There's something larger. In the Bible, there's many places we fight against principalities and powers of darkness and rulers in high places. There's plenty of places throughout Scripture that uh, Job, the first chapter, that pulled back the, 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 the veil that we can see something more going on. Sometimes we get focused simply on what, so the big picture is going on. What else, though? It, it, the, it, if you know the Greek, the word for war here, polemo, from where we get the word polemic, and you know what a polemic is? It's an argument. See, there was never a war of might and power. A created being cannot have a physical war of any means against an infinite creator. That's, that's over in a, in a millisecond. It was never a war of might and power. Satan never uh, challenged God to an arm wrestling contest to see who was stronger. It was never. It was always a war over, yes, he's powerful. Never said he wasn't. But you can't trust him with it. He'll, he'll coerce you. He'll threaten you. He'll abuse you. He'll hurt you. He's not safe with the power. That was the real issue. He makes up rules and he punishes rule breakers, which is exactly what almost all religions of the world teach. And that's what Jesus came to, of course, overthrow. So the big picture idea is that is a cosmic conflict over God's trustworthiness and his character and methods of rulership. Who gave Satan the ability to act on planet Earth? No. No. I said act. Act on planet Earth. Satan, by God, was restricted to a single tree. He was restricted to a tree. Who gave him access to the whole planet? Eve. 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 <laughs> it, was, it was human. Human gave him access. Human. There's a name for human. We call him Adam. But that human actually means Adam and Eve together, the joint couple. The two shall become one. As God designed it, it was never the singularity, Adam, the male, or the singularity, Eve, the female. It was the joint identity, the union of the two became human. And jointly together, they shared authority in Eden. And jointly together, they chose to surrender that authority. And that opened the door where Satan usurped Adam's authority and claimed to be the prince of the earth, and God gave him liberty at that point to act with certain restrictions. He was never fully free to act on planet earth. He was still always restrained to a certain degree. But he gave him certain liberties to act on earth, and this is only just to Romans 8.22. Big picture element here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What's the big picture item here? The whole creation is groaning. What's the big idea here? War in heaven spread to earth. Adam opened the door, gave Satan the, the, the rebel access to the planet now, and the whole nature is groaning. What's that mean? So, is there sickness and defects and pain in the world today? Are all such problems a result of individual acts of sin? Or do we see problems like that simply because sin's in the world? Why is there disease, aging, 
death, decay, poisonous plants, ferocious beasts in the world. Did God create plants? Did God create plants in Eden with thorns and plants that are toxic and poisonous to humans? Where did they come from? Did God create animals that kill each other? Hawks with with flesh-tearing beaks and claws and and lions and tigers with flesh-tearing claws and fangs. Did God create them this way in Eden? He did not. These are all epigenetic changes that have happened to the animal species and other types of uh, mutations because of sin in the world. Isaiah tells us that the ox and the the lion and the lamb will will lie down together and eat straw together. God did not. God is not the source of death, and God did not introduce death into the system. All death, all noxious plants, all poisons, all uh, anything that is destructive, that's all part of the infection that Satan is introduced into God's system. Before Christ returns and God restores the planet to perfection, before that, do things on earth get better or worse? Prepare. The planet and the ecosystems of this planet are going to degrade. The people of God in heart, mind, and character, get better. We shine brighter and brighter. We come to know the Lord more fully. We have more confidence and peace in him. But the nation states are going to decay. The ecosystems are going to get worse. We're going to have more natural disasters and other types of problems. And if you focus on the storms instead of focusing on Jesus... You're going to be discouraged, and you're going to be overcome with fear. Monday's lesson, first paragraph says, um, Oswald Chambers writes, Have you been asking God what he, will, what he is going to do? He will never tell you. God does not tell you what he's going to do. He reveals to you who he is. My utmost first highest. I want to also say, like C.S. Lewis, that I have found um, incredible wisdom and insights from the writings of Oswald Chambers. Uh, he dedicated his life to spreading the gospel. Millions, if not billions, have been blessed by him as well. And I've found beautiful truths there, but I question this particular idea. Again, I, I don't see them, uh, uh, Oswald or C.S. Lewis, in the same standard I see Scripture. I see these as holy, uh, these as men of God who are doing their best to communicate the truth as they understand it, but I don't see their writings as inspired like Scriptures. So it's okay to, to question their personal journey and their growth and where they're at. But the way I, at least I'm comprehending is I wish he was here so I could ask him what he meant. Maybe he means something different than I currently understand it, and I'm aware that could be my understanding its fault, not what, what he's trying to say. That, that's a possibility. Because God absolutely, I'm going to affirm what I, uh, the part here I can affirm, God absolutely does reveal himself to us in all kinds of ways. He reveals himself to us in Scripture, in the life of Jesus, in science and nature, in music, in every act of kindness, mercy, compassion, and love that you see. God is revealing himself in quiet moments when we talk to the Spirit and, and the Spirit moves upon our hearts and the providences of life. God is absolutely revealing himself to us everywhere. There's no question about that. But does that mean that God will never or never reveals his plans to us? Well, I had some Bible verses that popped in my mind. If you've got a, a computer uh, you know, download of some of the Scripture, you'll probably have them pop up in your mind. Amos 3.7. The sovereign Lord never does anything without revealing his plan to the, his servants, the prophets. Hmm. Jesus uh, speaking in John 13.19. I'm telling you now before it happens 
so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Or Jesus speaking in John 14, 29. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. So do we have evidence that God sometimes does reveal his plans to us before they actually happen? Okay. So I'm not sure what Oswald Chambers meant. Perhaps he meant that God doesn't reveal all of his plans to us. Well, that's, of course, true. Uh, but he said never reveals his plans to us, so that's a little extreme. Or perhaps he meant that God doesn't reveal all the little details of the plans, of how every little detail works out, because God wants to see our face when he surprises us with something that we didn't see coming. <laughs> Just like a parent has a surprise party for their child and you want to see the face, you don't tell them, I'm having a surprise party for you tomorrow. So maybe maybe uh, he meant something like that because God gets joy out of bringing surprises into our life, like you know a call to, to liberty. <laughs> I'm looking at my wife when I say that. <laughs> you know, somebody asked me. I was I was up there for that meeting, and they said, "Is your wife excited about coming?" I said, "Well, well, um, she's not uh, unhappy about it." <laughs> no, what did I say? I said, "She's not um, um, distressed about it." Yeah, I think is what I said. She's not distressed about it. No, no, that wasn't even it. It was, she's not discouraged about it. That's what I said. She's not discouraged about it. Because it's a mixed thing. She, she has been committed. She sees the Lord's call. She knows we're going to go where the Lord wants. We're not going to do the Jonah thing and require a fish to take us there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Landlocked, yeah. Um, but, but, but it's a, the whole thing for all of us. It's mixed. It's a mixed, emo- there's a lot of emotions about it. So. The lesson focuses on Job's struggle and the questions, and uh, uh, and then and then the questions that God uh, that Job asked God, and the lesson then points out that God asked Job sixty questions, which distinguish God as an infinite Creator from Job as a creature. Here's just two of the questions, but there are sixty of them of this type of of, of question. Job thirty-eight four. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Job 38, 31. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Okay. And the 60 questions on, on this order, on this type of question. Why do you think God asked Job such a long list of questions that made it clear that God was an infinite creator and Job as a created being was limited in both ability and understanding? Well, as you consider, I'll, I'll share with you what the quarterly wrote. And the quarterly wrote, God never, God never answers any of the why questions of Job's friends, but God does paint a picture of his unparalleled greatness as revealed through the astonishing works of creation. Now, now listen carefully. After this, Job certainly does not need any answers. The need for explanation has been eclipsed by an overwhelming picture of the magnificence of God. Do you agree with the conclusions of the quarterly? That because God is infinite and we are convinced of his majesty and magnificence and infinite power, therefore we don't need any questions answered. Is that really true? If God was going to win the war with might and power and displays of magnificence and not answer questions, then why didn't he just do that with Lucifer in the beginning, get in line, Smack you down, I've got more power, shut up, and do what we say. Okay, why didn't he do that? Because that's not how he wins. And what about the idea that the uh, need for explanation has been eclipsed by overwhelming might, power, magnificence? Is this how God wins? 
When Jesus was on earth, did he use that method? Uh, Could Jesus have wowed his audience with great displays of power and might and wealth and pomp? Could he have done it? Did he? No. What did Jesus, when he, in fact, when he did certain miracles and it became renowned and people started following for the miracles, what did he do? He stopped doing them and pulled away. That's what he did. He did not want them to follow him for these reasons. He wanted truth and heavenly truth alone to be what drew people. Why? Why did he not want to wow people and draw people with miraculous signs and wonders? It can be, it can be counterfeited. That's right. The battle is for, for hearts and minds. And every person must, must be fully persuaded in their own mind, so settled into the truth about God, his methods and principles, that nothing can shake them. <laughs> Satan doesn't have truth, and Satan doesn't have love, so Satan goes for the miraculous, the mystical, the sensational, the wow factor. Ooh! Oh, don't ask questions. Ooh! And you'll see certain organizations that build giant cathedrals that when you walk in, go, (gasps) and you're designed to make you stop thinking and don't ask questions. But God wins by presenting the truth in love and leaving us free. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. So my view, what was the purpose of the long list of questions that he asked Job? It was not to shut Job down, to stop Job's questions. It was the answer to Job's questions. God was leading Job by these questions to realize that there are perspectives, issues, possibilities that Job had himself not yet considered that were uh, going on that was more than just what was happening on earth, that the entire universe was involved. That including angels in heaven, God was through these questioning, opening Job's mind and giving the answers that Job was asking for. Things that stunned Job into silence and awe-inspiring amazement. And that's why he had nothing to say. Not because he was shut down, but because the possibilities were so immense He hadn't even considered them before. When he asked, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? The text goes on to say, because the angels were there and they sang for joy. There's more going on than you've considered, Job. This was an answer, not a shutting down. It's the exact opposite. And I'm going to tell you, it's really sad that God's magnificent patience in talking with Job and asking these questions to lead Job's mind to consider larger realities is presented by some to teach the exact opposite, that God wants you to shut your thinking down and not ask questions. It's very sad. I wish I had time to go on, but because there's, there's more in the lesson, but we, we're out of time and we've got we to gotta close. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are an infinite God of truth and love and that you want to win us with the truth, that we're fully persuaded, and you have provided overwhelming evidence of your goodness and your trustworthiness and your magnificence. And we open our hearts to you and we invite the Holy Spirit in and we ask for the victory that Christ has achieved to reproduce in us so that it's no longer I that live, but you live in me. We pray in your holy name. Amen.